0: if there is an answer floating around somewhere in that brain of mine, um, and especially in the deep recesses where maybe something will be called to mind that will be profitable to you, all right? So fire away. Now, I do have one or two questions that uh, I've already been sent, but I'll just sort of uh, measure those as the other questions go and see if we can put it together in the time frame that we have, maybe about 30, 35 minutes or so of questions and answers, all right, so who would like to be the first willing victim? <laughs> yes. Eli. All right. My my question is uh, about prayer and the Trinity and the relationship and we know that the in the Lord's prayer, uh Christ says, uh, "Our Father." And I wanted to know if you can give me uh give me or give us some guidance as to What role do each of the members of the Trinity play in terms of our prayer? And specifically, can you pray directly to Christ? Can you pray Mm. directly to the Holy Spirit? Well, great question. He's asking a question that has stumped people through the years, I think because uh, not only of the encroachment of cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses who find it very difficult to assume that Christ is God himself because they say, well, if... If Christ is God, then how can Jesus be on this earth praying to God if he is not God, if he is God himself? Uh, where's the Holy Spirit and his role uh, in the prayer life of the believer? And if he's God, do we pray to the Holy Spirit? Can we pray directly to the Holy Spirit? Can we pray directly to Jesus? Because scripture seems to indicate that we pray through Jesus to the Father. Uh, so can we pray directly to Jesus or the Holy Spirit? And of course, my answer to that is yes. And it is a resounding yes. Uh, Because each of the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are of the very essence of Godhood, then we can pray at any time to any of the persons of the Trinity directly. Now the question is, if we do that, are we in violation of Scripture? Are we uh, doing something that's untoward um, and, and inappropriate. And I, and I don't believe the answer to that is yes, that's inappropriate. I think we have the privilege and the opportunity, and, and maybe even I would add the responsibility to acknowledge each of the three persons of the one God. And to acknowledge them through prayer, I think, is a right thing to do. Um, for instance, let's go uh, to Matthew's Gospel, and we might look at the Lord's Prayer for a moment. And I'll try to answer uh, the questions uh, fairly quickly. I uh, may not be able to, to you know, give an expanded answer on any one of these because I want to be able to field as many questions as possible. But if you look in, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, there with the Lord's Prayer, it is, of course, a prayer um, to the Father that Jesus is encouraging his disciples. It's, it's said to be, of course, through the millennia, the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. It's really a, an instructional opportunity for, for Jesus to teach his disciples how to pray. So we really should probably call this the disciples' prayer. And notice he says, for instance, in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, that implies that you are asking the Father, okay? because it says you will ask him. And so it is very appropriate to pray directly to the Father. Uh, Some would say it is the most appropriate way to pray, but I don't know that that's a mandate to say that the most appropriate kind of praying is to the Father, as though if we don't pray to Jesus or we shouldn't pray directly to Jesus or shouldn't pray directly to the Holy Spirit because it's the most appropriate thing to pray to the Father. I think it's most appropriate to pray to God and since all three persons are the one God, then it's appropriate to pray to all of them. And so clearly it is true here that we are to pray to the Father. But notice in Acts chapter 7, that comes to my mind, Acts chapter 7, I want you to see something that you might not have Regularly seen in that brutal scene of the death of the martyr Stephen. And in chapter 7, you know, of course, that uh, Stephen, this godly man, uh, is appealing to the Jews uh, to believe in Jesus, and they are very, very upset with what he's saying in this context of Acts chapter 7. And then you get all the way to verse 54 and you see the account of the stoning of Stephen. And notice what it says. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. That's the glory of God the Father and Jesus standing at the right hand of of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And everybody says that's very uh, normal. I've read that many, many times, very natural uh, for a scene like this, because we know the Father is in heaven. But notice verse 57 and following. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And I assume they rushed together at him uh, in rage because he was also referring to Jesus being there in heaven at the right hand, they would have known that that was the right hand of power, the right hand of authority, that Jesus would have a full authority himself, and they were enraged at that because they would not have believed in Jesus in this way at all. He's a mere man. He's not God in human flesh. And then verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We, of course, know him as Saul Paul and they were stoning Stephen, he called out, and what did he say? Here's his prayer. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Okay, that's a prayer. That's a prayer. It's a prayer of of desperation. It's a prayer of acclamation, of affirmation that Jesus can deliver him and that Jesus can receive his spirit. That's a prayer to Jesus. That's a prayer directly to Jesus. And so Stephen's not wrong with this. In fact, Stephen is uh, speaking because he's full of the Holy Spirit according to verse 55. So he prays to Jesus. I think we can pray to Jesus. In fact, we must pray to Jesus. He's God. And we then, when we pray to Jesus, pray to God, right? Now, there are passages, like for instance, look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 gives a a, a kind of formula, not formulaic prayers, but a formula in our prayers that is so very, very uh, natural and normal for us. Colossians 3, verse 17, "...and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him." Now, that's very normal for us. And that's why we, we tend, as evangelical believers, to say... We pray in Jesus' name, right? We pray to you, Father, in Jesus' name, or because of Christ, or by Christ, or through Christ. That's very normal. It's very natural. And it's very biblical. Now, someone says, will your prayers be answered if you don't say in Jesus' name? Yes. Because if your heart and your intent is to pray through Christ to the Father. And why do we pray, and why does the Scripture call upon us to pray through Christ to the Father? Here's the essence of that. It's not a formulaic kind of praying. It's this. Everything we have, including our access to the Father, is through Christ. So we pray through Christ to the Father. We have our access through Christ to the Father. We have our salvation through Christ to the Father. Everything we have, everything we are as Christians is as a result of the cross of Christ and through that cross we have access to the throne room of God the Father. And because of that, it's very right and righteous and natural and normal to pray through Christ, even giving thanks, as he says here in Colossians 3:17, through Christ to the Father. And what we mean by that is your cross, Jesus, has given me the right, the privilege, the honor, the access to the Father. So yes, we pray in Jesus name because of Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus to the Father because that access has been granted to us through the cross. So that's a good theology. But that doesn't mean that we can never pray directly to Jesus and only through Jesus. In fact, I would submit that we are praying both to Jesus and through Jesus, even when we're praying through Jesus, because He is God. And He has that right hand of authority on high. And I believe that there is a great opportunity to pray even to the Holy Spirit. Because think about this. Who's the author of Scripture? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the sacred writings. And so when you thank God for the Word, who are you thanking God for? The Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is God. And when you're thanking Him for the Word, you're thanking for the author of that Word. And who's the author of that Word? The Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's very right and honorable to say thank you, Holy Spirit, for your word. In fact, the very first verse in your Bibles in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. And then what does verse 2 say? And the Spirit was hovering over the waters. The very second verse of our Bibles introduces us to the Holy Spirit. And throughout the rest of Scripture, we are enjoined to be in love with, to love, to adore, to magnify the Holy Spirit. And sometimes even Christians are a little squeamish about saying that we want to pray to the Holy Spirit, we want to enjoy and adore and magnify the Holy Spirit, because they say, well, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit's always the one who's asking us to give glory to the Father, right, and, and to defer to the glory of Jesus, as though the Holy Spirit doesn't want uh, to be magnified. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because we are Trinitarian Christians, and therefore we love the Father, we love the Son, we love the Holy Spirit, and therefore because they are the three persons of the one God, we actually can love them and adore them and magnify them as persons, And even though they are distinct as persons, they are of one essence as God, and therefore it is right to pray to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Well, if He is someone who we are not to grieve, He's also one that we can go to pray and say, don't let me grieve you, Holy Spirit, right? I don't want to grieve you. I don't want to undermine your work in my life or your work in the world. That's a very wonderful prayer and it's not inappropriate at all. Okay? All right. Another question. Another question. Yes, ma'am. Um, my question is from Titus. I've been going through Titus um, listening to tapes from John MacArthur. And I'm, I'm familiar with him. John MacArthur. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children to believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. He has said that children in that verse means adult children. And I, he gave a very good argument for why he believes that way. Yes. And um, I haven't really heard that in very many. I don't know that uh, most people even believe that. Yes. So, but I thought he gave a really good uh, reason why. So I since I don't know you very well. I wanted to ask, what do you believe? And what do you use to support what you believe? Okay, she's asking the question. This is for the sake of not only the, the videotape, but the audio tape as well. I'll repeat the question. Uh, she says there are uh, very good Bible teachers... teach that Titus 1.6 when it says uh, that uh, his children, this is the uh, English Standard Version, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, Other translations translated, you know, essentially the same but with a a little bit of a difference. And the question is, uh, if Titus 1.6 is being said by these very excellent Bible teachers to require that children uh, are believers in order to be qualified to be elders. And John's particular interpretation also goes on to say that this implies uh, that these children are adult children. Uh, so, what is my take on that? Well, I'm so glad you asked such an easy question. It is a very, very good question. And Here's my take on it, okay? If that particular word for belief, the Greek word is pistos, and it is listed in this text, in Titus 1.6, in a particular form of that Greek word that could mean either an active sense or a passive sense to that word. The active form... Would be translated as the English Standard Version does it here, believers. Okay, that's the active sense of pistis. Okay, in the passive form of that particular word, that noun, it would mean something like this: faithful. All right, because we're talking about a word that could, in its context, be something to, uh, referring to active believing or passively faithful, uh, passive in the sense that. It's not talking about someone who is a believer, but someone who is faithful. Now, John is, has, and I've listened to those uh, same messages. I was there at Grace Church when he preached through the book of Titus. And John's argument there, uh, in addition to the idea of his belief that these are adult children, and the reason why he believes that they're adult adult children here is because if Paul is, is telling Titus uh, to set in order what remains and to appoint elders in every city, it is very likely that he would not be appointing elders who had small children uh, because this was a context in which these elders would have been older men because the very word for elder itself, presbyteros, uh, is a word that means aged person or older man, something like that. And so if he was an older man in that culture, they would have already had children who were adult children. And so he makes that context in his mind clear historically that they're talking about adult children here. And so if they are adult children, John would take this particular word uh, for the more active sense, like the ESV does here, that they are believers. They have to be believers. All right, now turn your Bibles over to 1 Timothy 3. This is another book in what we call the Pastoral Epistles, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you will find essentially very similar qualifications here, Uh, being above reproach, for example, verse 1, uh, or verse 2, I should say, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, 1 Timothy 3, 2, the husband of one wife, probably translated better, the one woman man or a one woman man, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, uh, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity. And then notice this, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there, he gives similar qualification about the family, about the household, But it appears, and this would be John's idea, John's interpretation, that he would be saying, I think that passage is different than Titus 1, different in this sense. If the children are at home and are are to be submissive to their father, to their parents, because it says if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He implies by that 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 means younger children because they're in the home. They're called upon to be submissive. You compare that with Titus 1.6, and it appears as though those are adult children who are outside the home because they are not to be accused of debauchery or insubordination. There are other Bible teachers, though, who say that they believe that 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are talking about the same context. Two different cities. One, uh, the island of Crete. Here, 1 Timothy, Ephesus. But even though they're different places, same instruction or very similar instruction. And those Bible teachers would say, therefore in Titus 1, I think it should be taken in the passive sense that these children should be faithful. Now John's argumentation there is, well, faithful to what? Faithful to their parents or faithful to the Lord or faithful to both? Because even if it's to be uh, rendered in the passive sense, it should mean that they are faithful to God, faithful to Christ. Therefore, they essentially mean the same thing. And so therefore, if someone is to be serving as an elder, then whether they have younger children in the home, they're to be submissive to their parents, even if they're not presently believers. uh, Your hope and prayer and desire is that they one day would be believers uh, because you want to teach them, you want to manage your own home well. And that's actually how you, you look at these qualifications and see if a man is managing his home well. And then you see his kids actively pursue Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and then in Titus 1 if they've left your home and if they're out in the community but they're still your adult children then you should say his qualifications should be evaluated on the basis of whether or not his adult children are believers. Now that's the basic interpretation. I'm not sure I'm there. I'm not sure that I would say that Titus six mandates that adult children of men who are aspiring to the eldership should in fact be believers. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. It's not as though I think that interpretation is dead wrong. I just think we have to be careful with that. Not just practically, but we're, we're grappling with these texts here. In the sense that you have adult children, let's say go back to Crete, And there are adult children on that island. And there are men who are aspiring to the eldership. And Titus has been commanded by Paul to go and appoint elders in every city. So now Titus is trying to determine how I can see these qualified men serving, given Titus 1.6. And now I have to look in the community at the adult children of every one of these men to see whether or not they're true believers. And if they're all true believers, then that means that that man can serve as an elder, along with these other characteristics that are listed. I think that's probably going beyond what is said here, only in the sense that, let's say that man is an aged person, let's say he's in his uh, 60s or 70s or possibly 80s, and he is being potentially regarded as an elder in a local church. If you had adult children of his who were in their 40s or 50s or 60s and you were looking at his life as an elder and then you were looking at their lives as adult children of that potential elder, would you be basing the qualification of his service upon their lives as 40-year-olds or 50-year-olds or 60-years-old, and if, in fact, one of his children among, say, four or five uh, children, adult children in his family or extended family, one of those was not a believer, would that automatically or necessarily mean that that man would be disqualified as serving as an elder? Now, that's a hard one. That would be a hard one to say that because he has a, you know, 54-year-old adult child who's long been out of the home maybe for 20 or 30 years, potentially, um, uh, would it be possible to say that just because one of the members of his adult children in that family, uh, he would be therefore automatically disqualified? I'm not sure I could be dogmatic on that. I'm not sure I could say that just given that one example now, certainly, if indeed that particular family has a number of profligate children, whether they're adults or not, rebellious, debauched. did you use some of the language here insubordinate, then that actually is a qualification that could deal more with the idea of his being above reproach or not. Because if he's not managing his house well, whether he has children in the home or children outside the home, then it's probably true to say that he would not be qualified because there's enough reproach that could be brought upon his life, his parenting, his management of his family rather than just the uh, the idea that if he has only one children out of many and that child has been out of the home for 10, 15, 20 years and that one child is an unbeliever and therefore he's automatically disqualified. I'm not sure I can say that. So there's a lot more to say, but I would tend to think you have to do two things. Number one, you do have to grapple with what Titus one six says. And you have to determine, is it different than First Timothy 3? And if so, what are those differences? Are we talking about children in the home or children outside the home? Are we talking about uh, adult children who have been outside the home for many, many years and whether or not they are believers or not or whether or not they have brought reproach upon their father in the community? And then I think you have to evaluate, secondly, every situation, every man, every family on an individual level. And I think because of the varied nature of families and of these fathers, and of these children, and of multiple children, uh, a a number of siblings in a family, and you have to work your way through systematically and lovingly uh, whether a a man is truly qualified with all of these characteristics, and not just discount him if there is one unbelieving adult child, even if that adult child, for instance, could be in another state or another country. And there are people in that congregation who know nothing about that child or no, know nothing about that uh, adult child situation. Um, maybe that adult child has had a, a divorce of some kind. Uh, and, and maybe that uh, adult child has, has not uh, professed faith in Christ. Uh, maybe there's a process uh, for an 18- or 22-year-old or uh, a post-collegian uh, who's continuing to try to determine where that person is you know, spiritually, um, and do you say, well, uh, until you determine where that uh, 27-year-old child of yours is at spiritually, uh, and if he's not uh, or she is not you know, immediately professing faith in Christ, uh, then uh, only until then will you be qualified to serve. Uh, I just think we have to be careful and be not rigid uh, in our evaluation uh, so that one size fits all. It clearly does not. You clearly have to be discerning, and you have to both as a congregation, because the congregation is the one who affirms um, who elders are in a local congregation as they're nominated, and you also have to work within the, the eldership to determine uh, the answer to those questions. And I've known of churches, and I've known of situations where they haven't taken that interpretation, and they've had men who have served as a, as elders and have served well as elders in contexts where everything is not so neat and, and tidy and clean. Uh, being evaluated on the basis of that own local church and its own standards, not apart from Scripture, but trying to grapple with these passages of Scripture and come, with, come out with the right interpretation. Okay, So my position is, it could mean actively that they should be believers, but I'm not sure I can be so dogmatic to say it has to mean that. It could be understood in the more passive sense of faithful, and that even may be faithful to Christ, faithful to the Word of God, but it may just be faithful to that father, faithful to that husband, faithful to that that elder where they're not bringing reproach upon him, even if they haven't consciously themselves placed their faith in Christ. Okay? All right, great question. I'll tell you what, because we've got one question that someone sent me that was a burning, burning question, that they wanted me to answer today, I probably should do this because I don't want us to run out of time and I want to be faithful to answer their question. And this very, very easy question is about the doctrine of election. (laughs) And the question is, and it's very practical, and I think it's a very honest question, and the question is basically this. And this is certainly not something that has never been asked before and I won't be the last person to try to answer it, believe you me. If the doctrine of election is true, and let's assume that it's true, that is not political elections, we we understand, but it's the election of people to faith in Christ. If the doctrine of election is true, then does that take away the responsibility for people to believe? Or, even more technical, if the doctrine of election is true, then what about those people who never believe? Does that mean that because they weren't elect by God, they weren't elected by God, then they really never had the opportunity to believe and that there is some inherent unfairness with that because of the doctrine of election and therefore are there going to be a whole host of persons in the history of the world that in eternity we find are not in heaven because they were not elected and that's why they're not in heaven or to put it in the more negative vein are we going to find because of the doctrine of election that God didn't choose certain persons and because he didn't choose those certain persons they are forever in hell because God didn't choose them okay that's a great question and it's a question that gnaws on the minds and hearts of many many people especially unbelievers who are saying wait a minute if you're telling me that God elects certain persons to go to heaven and that he doesn't elect certain others to go to heaven, then number one, I think that's unfair. And number two, that means that they're not in heaven because God didn't give them the opportunity that he gave others who are. All right, those are great practical questions. Here's where I think we've got to start. I think we have to start at the premise, probably not even beginning to talk about God in election before we talk about the nature of man. The nature of man. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We could go to many places and we might troll around a few texts, but I think Romans 3 is probably exactly where we need to start first. And it is this. If, if you've been a part of Thousand Oaks Bible Church for any length of time or you've been a part of another church... Where they taught these kinds of truths, you know this. That the nature of man, according to the Bible, the nature of man, is that he comes out of the womb as a corrupt individual. Okay, here's Romans three. Here's what God says according to Romans three nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Any better better off than Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, are under sin, as it is written. And then the quotation from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Further, And why does Paul say what he says? Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable to God. Accountable in this sense, that you have to believe that every person who's ever been born in the history of the world, man, woman, or child, or who will ever be born in the history of the world, is born a sinner. And they sin because they are sinners. They are constituted as sinners. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, and then notice this, because all sinned. You say, wait a minute, I wasn't there, I wasn't even born yet. How can all be said to sin when I wasn't there? And the answer of Romans 5.12 is this, Mysterious though it may be in the minds of those who try to conceive of it, every single person in the history of the world and who will ever be in this world came from Adam. Now that part's not hard to understand. We were said to be somehow in the loins of Adam. He was what we call the progenitor of the human race. And therefore, everybody who's ever been born has been born, in a sense, from Adam, the one man. Therefore, when he plunged the whole human race into sin by his sin, then every man sinned in Adam. You say, I don't like that. I don't like that doctrine. Well, I don't like it either, but it's still true. And because we know it's true, we see it in the life of every person who comes out of that womb. And there's not a single person, save the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who did not, of course, have that human father. That idea that everybody who comes out of the womb and sins has been played out with every single human being in the history of the world. Every single person sins. Just last night, I was with my beautiful... Scaredo of a grandson, Jaden Cole, and we were celebrating Shane Kelly's birthday, and we were at the Jans Mall, and we were at Coldstone Creamery, now you know all my life last night, and we were feeding little Jaden Cole, who's eight months old, some little bits of ice cream on a spoon. And he was loving it until we didn't feed him that ice cream anymore. And he does this flapping of his hands and he's clearly agitated. And you know, when he grows older, he's going to perfect the art of that agitation into full-blown sin. Now, is that just because he's a part of me that he sins? Well, that's partly true. But it's also true that every single boy, every single girl who comes out of that womb, and you all know it, especially you moms, They sin up a storm the older they get. And it's natural. And it's normal. Because Adam plunged the whole human race into sin. And what's worse is that constitutionally are we not just sinners, but we're also sinners because of our own personal sin that we perfect over time. And because of that, that's the premise you have to start with. Okay, So, the doctrine of election... Set that aside for one moment. The doctrine of humanity means, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 5, is that every single person is what theologians call totally depraved. Totally depraved. Now that doesn't mean that every single person is as worse as they could be. No, Because the Holy Spirit, God Himself, sometimes restrains even unbelievers from sinning even more uh, to protect His creation, to protect even believers at times. So we're not saying by the term total depravity that everybody is as sinful as they could be at all points and at every time. Thank God. But it is to say, total depravity, is that everything in a person is shot through and through with sin. Everything. His mind, his will, his emotions. Everything has been penetrated by sin. Everything about Him. It doesn't mean He's as sinful as He could be at every point, but it does mean that He is as sinful as He could be in the sense that He will never on His own, ever, 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 one day just say, you know, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And I've got to get myself out of this mess. And on my own, I'm going to believe in God. And I'm going to trust Him by faith. And I'm going to believe in this gospel. And nobody ever told me this. And I don't know why I haven't thought of this before. But I just think I'll choose Christ today. No one's ever done that in the history of the world. Why? Because as we learned in John chapter 3, Jesus said you must be what? Born again. You have to be regenerated from above By the Holy Spirit. You don't think those thoughts on your own. The Holy Spirit has to open your mind to the truth of the gospel when you hear it. And what is the truth of the gospel? Here's the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, He came to this world. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And He then went to a cross to pay the penalty for the sins that you and I deserve. And that penalty is death. In fact, look at Romans chapter 3 again and you can see this very, very clearly laid out in verse 23. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, and that all means all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, you want to know implicitly why Jesus is God? Look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. Let me ask you, did Jesus ever sin? No. So He's not a part of the all, right? So if there's two categories, all that have sinned, and then God in His glory, if Jesus isn't in this category, He's over in this category, which means He's what? He's God. He's perfect, therefore He's God. You see? And so, everybody who's come into this world, all of us have sinned, and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And because that's true, we need a propitiation. We need a satisfaction. And in verse 25, God put forward as a satisfaction by His blood, Christ Jesus, and it is to be received by faith. It is to be received by faith. So you repent of your sin, you turn from your sin, and you receive Jesus Christ by faith, so that you can be one of those for whom Christ's cross satisfies God's wrath against sin. All right? That's the essence of the gospel. Now, nobody understands that and nobody receives that and nobody is appealing to that kind of gospel unless God opens their mind to the truth of that. Okay? Now, go back to the doctrine of election now. Because everybody in the whole world is a sinner, all have sinned, is God under any obligation whatsoever to save any of them? Is He? No. God is righteous. God is holy. God has no obligation whatsoever. In fact, because of that righteousness and that holiness of God, He would be totally just and righteous to plunge every single person, man, woman, and child who's ever lived or will ever live into hell and would be totally righteous in doing so. Because he's holy and he's righteous and we are unholy and unrighteous. And if he had a plan and that plan was to send everybody, everybody to hell who was born a sinner and then sinned by their choices, then he would be totally righteous in doing so. It'd be like this. Let me give you the analogy. God is the teacher in the class, and there's a an examination there's a final, and when the final examination has been taken and scored every every single person in the class has what failed they failed, they flunked guilty guilty is charged f and f doesn't mean fine <laughs> means failed. And what if God, as the teacher in the classroom says you all failed the class. You will never graduate. You will never pass. You're done. You're finished. It's over. Forever. Now, if anybody in the class says, but teacher, that's unfair. Why can't you grade on the curve? And he said, I did, and everybody failed anyway. <laughs> so the curve is failure. All right, well, but you've you got to give us another chance. Uh, 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 and all the excuses come, Right? That's why Romans 3 says so that everybody's mouth is stopped when they're arguing with God so that everybody may be proved a liar. Wait a minute, that's not fair. Or I don't like this. Or this is not the right plan. So if you start with the right premise now, even apart from the doctrine of election. If you start with the right premise, the right premise is something like this. Since everybody failed, since everybody deserves hell, they deserve their sins not to be forgiven now you bring in the doctrine of election and out of the mass of sinful humanity, every one of them dead in sins, dead in trespasses, not deserving anything, deserving hell, deserving the worst that they could possibly receive because they're sinners by nature and choice. God says, in His immutable love and mercy and grace, I have decided to save some of them. You say, unfair! Unfair! Wait a minute. Everybody failed in the class. In fact, the people who are arguing all the time for fairness, what's fair in that? Here's what's fair. Everybody deserves hell. Everybody deserves judgment. That's fair. You don't want what's fair. Please don't ask for fair. You, you want the other. You, you, you want God's mercy and grace. You, you want Him to, to, to say to you, even though you were in that condition, even though you were that kind of sinner, even though you deserved that death and that hell and that judgment, here's what I've done. I took you out of the mass of that humanity, sinful though you were, and I decided to set my love upon you in mercy and grace. And what I did... Was I gave my son in death for you. You know what Romans nine says? "Jacob I loved, Esau, I hated." People go, "Oh, I don't like that verse. Oh, I don't like that verse. You know what strikes me? You know what's the greatest phenomenon of that reality? It's not the Jacob it's not the Esau I hated part, because God hates sin. He hates every sinner who sins because they sin, because it's against his holy and righteous word and law and person. That part doesn't get to me. The part that overwhelms me is the part that says, Jacob I loved. Why? You say, why? Because God said I want to love him. You say, but that's unfair if he didn't say that to Esau. What does Esau deserve? Deserves hell. What does Jacob deserve? He deserves hell. So the glory of election is that God decided in eternity past to save anybody. To elect anybody. And you know, if you're here today and if you're a Christian, if you've repented from your sins, if you've placed your faith and confidence in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, it isn't because of what you did. It's like Charles Spurgeon once said, Boy, I'm so glad that Christ elected me to salvation because if it were up to me, I would never have chosen him. And that's true. If you're on your way to heaven, my friends, it's only because of the sovereign grace of the electing work of God Himself when you and I didn't deserve it. You and I are going to be both now and in eternity continually saying something like this Why did you choose me? I don't deserve this grace, I don't deserve this mercy. You did something for me that I cannot ever see as anything other than your love and grace toward me. And I'm going to serve you all my days, and I'm going to praise you all my days, and I'm going to give you all my hallelujahs, all the days of my life, both now and in eternity, because I know I didn't deserve it. That, my friends, is the doctrine of election. And you know that A.W. Pink says, and he rightly does say it, that the doctrine of election is the most pride-crushing doctrine in all of Scripture. Because it just shows us what we didn't deserve, but what we received nonetheless. Now, somebody's going to say, okay, but what about all of those people who, as they continue to sin in their lives, and they continue to be irresponsible, well, if they're not elect then they don't have the capacity to, the, to believe, and if they're not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they're never going to believe. How's that fair? Go back to your doctrine of humanity. If they're sinners by choice and by nature, then they're on the road that they're on, and if God chooses not to put His love upon him, uh, His His saving love upon them, and He leaves them as they are, God's totally righteous in doing so totally righteous and someone's going to say but I want at the end to know that if I'm in Little League everybody gets a trophy see it's our mentality everybody gets a trophy everybody gets the reward everybody gets an award we can't have some who get it and some who don't go back to your doctrine of humanity I'll tell you what in 1987 I read a book that helped me tremendously and it may help you too it was this one this very book right here called Chosen for Life by Samuel Storms. Twenty years later, in 2007, this book was revised like this, Chosen for Life. And now nearly ten years later, almost 30 years, I was so encouraged when I read this book. And I just want to close with this, and I know this might be a little bit of an extended uh, illustration, but I think you will be tremendously helped by this. And this may be an illustration that will stick in your minds forever. And if it does, this may help you. All right, here it goes. Jerry and Ed are identical twins raised by loving Christian parents. As much as was humanly possible, their mother and father refused to play favorites. Both boys were shown the same affection granted the same privileges, and bore the same responsibilities in the home. They attended the same schools and were virtually equal in athletic ability, popularity among their peers, and grade point average. They were truly twins in temperament, personality, and achievement. The boys attended church regularly with their parents, but showed no interest in religious matters. They would often sit at the back of the church and laugh at the preacher disdainful at his persistent appeal for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. As they were alike in so many other respects, they appeared to share an equal contempt for the gospel. Jerry and Ed had just celebrated their 19th birthday and were looking forward to graduating from high school. It was Easter Sunday. They were sitting in the same pew where they had sat for years, listening to the same pastor. But something was different. Nothing unusual, at least in terms of the mundane, natural affairs of life, had occurred to account for what happened on that morning. Neither brother had endured a humiliating experience at school, nor had they been the recipients of excessive praise and honor. By all appearances, it was just another Sunday morning. But this day, much to his own surprise, Jerry suddenly found himself listening intently to the sermon while Ed was doodling on the church bulletin, obviously without interest in anything being said. Both brothers had heard countless sermons depicting their sinful and desperate spiritual condition, together with the promise of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ. But not until that Easter Sunday did either of them pay the slightest degree of attention. Ideas and doctrines that had until then sounded silly and archaic, mysteriously began to make sense to Jerry. The existence of an infinitely holy God against whom he had rebelled, together with the prospect of eternal death, shattered all his remaining tranquility of soul. He glanced briefly to Ed to see if he was paying attention. Not a chance. The pastor's right, Jerry silently concluded, I am a sinner. Jesus is God in human flesh. And without Him, I have no hope. Oh God, help! Save me! Forgive me! Jesus, You are my only hope! If You had not died in my place and endured the Father's wrath, I most certainly would have. Forgive me for being so utterly blind to Your beauty until now. Oh Son of God, I embrace You alone. I want to live wholly and utterly for You. Jerry struggled to explain to himself what was happening. All he knew was that while listening to what he had heard so many times before, he heard it for the very first time. What he had read in the Bible so many times before, he now saw as if it only had then appeared. Jesus of Nazareth, who until now held no attraction for him, suddenly seemed altogether lovely and winsome. The conviction that this Jesus alone could deliver him from the spiritual turmoil, grief, and guilt in which he he was uh, mired gripped his heart. His soul was, as it were, flooded with wave upon wave of peace and joy as he felt the burden of his sin lifted from his shoulders and placed upon Christ in whom it vanished from sight. Ed couldn't help but notice that his brother was weeping. With a quick jab of his elbow in Jerry's side, he whispered, Cut that out! You're embarrassing me! But Jerry was unfazed. What Jerry now found altogether lovely, Ed continued to loathe. Jerry's unbelief disappeared under a flood of repentance and whole-souled love for Christ. By an act of his will, Jerry embraced the redemptive sufferings of Jesus as his only hope and haven. He willingly repudiated sin and reliance on self and with joy reposed in Christ, leaned in Christ. But Ed remained obstinate and now even more indignant in his unbelief. Needless to say, Jerry's experience that morning made for a volatile conversation in the car on the way home. He tried to explain to his brother what had happened, but Ed was incredulous, unbelieving, and filled with rage. They were so engrossed in conversation that neither of them saw the pickup truck jump the median into their lane. The crash was head-on and fatal for both. Instantly, Jerry left this life and entered the bliss of eternal joy in the presence of the Savior whom he had embraced only minutes before, in saving faith. Tragically, Ed faced the eternal opposite, separation from the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ as an object not of love and favor, but of righteous wrath and indignation. What accounts for the irrevocable and eternal division between these earthly brothers? What made Jerry differ from Ed? Why did one come to heartfelt and happy faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior while the other persisted in heartfelt hatred and disdain? That is the question the doctrine of divine election is designed to answer. In the final analysis, when all is said and done, one must attribute Jerry's faith either to Jerry or to God Or to some form of cooperative effort on the part of both. And then Sam Storm says, Divine election is profoundly practical and is the only satisfactory explanation for why Jerry was made to differ from Ed. You see, they were both going to hell. And in God's divine love, through his electing grace, he decided to put his love upon Jerry. And when he did, Jerry entered into heaven. Ed, he was left as he was, in his unrepentant unbelief. You say, I want all the Eds to turn and not burn. So do I. And that's why we evangelize. That's why we talk to people. So that God can give us an indication as we witness to those who are all headed to hell whom God has elected from eternity past. Why don't we bow together in a word of prayer. Father, Father, this doctrine is certainly difficult to understand, but it's not impossible to understand. And it's certainly something to be believed and affirmed. And we believe... It is true and it is biblical and that it motivates us so very clearly to reach out evangelizing others who could at any moment like Ed go to eternity. May you use us as the very fuel for our mission to reach out to both the Jerry's and the Ed's of the world. And if you were to be so kind as you are to make of those to whom we witness born again, regenerated, and see the glorious light of the Gospel, we would be so grateful. And for those like Ed who continue to hurl their taunts at us, being disbelieving, forever and ever, may we say, our heart is broken, but our God is just. May You give us a sense of the understanding of these things for Your glory and for Your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our closing song is going to be the song sheet. And let me just uh, mention, if you don't have one, um, perhaps the men in the back can help get one to you very, very quickly. If you don't, raise your hand, and they'll be happy to to, to issue one. We're going to sing just the first verse of, of this one today. And uh, I didn't plan it this way, but after our first question today... This song that we're closing with is a song that is a prayer to the Holy Spirit. So let's stand and pray and sing together to our great God. Just the. That's our prayer. Thank you.